Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Hannah May, and this is Flying Faith Talks, Biblical Counseling for the Creative Mind. Today's episode was originally recorded on January 23rd. This is episode number 16, and we are actually going to do a double book analysis of Brian McClellan's Wrath of Empire and Blood of Empire. About a year ago, I was trying to initiate a review system where this show is not only going to be having guests on and discussing how to handle our creativity with a biblical mindset, but also how to look at creativity with a biblical mindset. In other words, looking at other creative works. And I was mostly going to be focusing on books, although I'm open to other genres as well, whether it be games or movies. I mean, I was thinking I was going to try to experiment with that last year. Now, clearly, my experiment only ended up being a single episode, (laughs) which was when I uh, reviewed the first book in this series that we're looking at today, Sins of Empire, which was written by Brian McClellan. And unfortunately, because of how things went with my schedule, and it was really hard for me to have time to even listen to audiobooks at the time. I was launching my own book, Celestial, for the first time. It was a new experience, and I was having to put a lot of my focus and effort on that, that I really couldn't spend any time on another book. Now that's over, so now I actually took the time to not only read the second book in this series, I've actually gone ahead and also listened to the third book. So I've actually finished the whole trilogy. And because they're so closely tied together, I kind of wanted to do a review on them both at the same time. I am pondering whether or not I'll actually write a full written review for each of them, all three books. But we're just going to wait and see because, as some of you know, I am currently incredibly busy with my own works. That's why I'm partially why I'm doing the podcast format because. I can record things faster than I can write them well. So here we are. (laughs) Okay, without further ado, let's continue. Uh, So these two books that we're going to be reviewing together is book two and book three of what I've mentioned earlier is part of Brian McClellan's Gods of Blood and Powder trilogy. Uh, The second book was dubbed Wrath of Empire, and the third final book was dubbed Blood of Empire. And they were both published by Orbit Books. The publication date on these two, uh, Wrath of Empire was released on May 17th, 2018, and Blood of Empire was released on December 3rd, 2019. Their genre is the fantasy action-adventure genre, and this series is taking place after Brian McClellan's Powder Mage series. And just to make clear, as I did earlier, I did not listen to the Powder Mage trilogy, so... This is coming from the perspective of somebody who has only seen the Gods of Blood and Powder trilogy. So just take that with what you will. And I know in the first episode, um, I read a summary on, actually it was the book blurb on the original book. So I think it's fair enough if I go ahead and read the blurb on the second book. Because part of me was worried, if I read this out loud, am I going to spoil something about the first book? Because to me, that's the tricky thing about trying to advertise for a trilogy. It's good and easy to try to keep your secrets with the first book on the blurb. But when you're trying to continue the series and let people know what it's about, I, I imagine it's really difficult to write an interesting blurb 
that's going to grab a hold of those who've already read the first book and at the same time not give things away to someone who has not seen the first book, reads it, and are like, okay, well, if this is the first one, let me go back. So I, I was kind of nervous, but when I read this, this second book's blurb, I didn't think it gave away too much. Uh, the third book, though, um, I'm probably not going to read that blurb. I'll probably just read the very, very top part of it because I felt like if you put the dots together, you're going to kind of figure out a couple of little spoilers that happens within the second book. So uh, here we go. This is the blurb on the second book, Wrath of Empire. It reads, The country is in turmoil. With the capital city occupied, half a million refugees are on the march looking for safety on the frontier, accompanied by Lady Flint's soldiers. But escaping war is never easy, and soon the battle may find them, whether they are prepared or not. Back in the capital, Mikkel Bravis smuggles even more refugees out of the city, but internal forces are working against him. With enemies on all sides, Mikkel may be forced to find help with the very occupiers he's trying to undermine. Meanwhile, Ben Stike is building his own army. He and his mad lancers are gathering every able body they can find and searching for an ancient artifact that may have the power to turn the tides of war in their favor. But what they find may not be what they're looking for. In the third book, I'll just read the top part. It says, as the final battle approaches, a sellsword, a spy, and a general must find unlikely and dangerous allies in order to turn the tides of war in this epic fantasy tale of magic and gunpowder by acclaimed author Brian McClellan. So if any of you even remotely remember the first episode, and if you haven't heard it before, I mean, I highly recommend you listen to it. I mean, I'm not going to say it's the best episode I ever recorded, but... I mean, if you listen to it and you have good pointers for me, I am very eager and happy to hear them so I can continue improving on this reviewing for books on podcasts. I have n I'm used to reviewing games in written form. I am not entirely used to reviewing things on podcast form. So anyway, if you remember my opinion of Sins of Empire, which was the first book of the series, you remember that I regarded it as a very, very well-written book, very entertaining, quite impressive, actually. Uh, and yet the morality score was kind of low. Like, I felt like the violence was a little bit too much. Some of the wording was not great. Like, they would drop a few S-bombs here and there. Uh, thankfully, no F-bombs, thank goodness. But uh, they would use some exclamatory comments. And, yeah, I don't care for that part. Uh, but overall, it was above average score. It was like a 60%, I think, in an overall scoring. I mean, I could be, I could be wrong. Maybe my memory's not so great. Knowing that, going into these two books, I wasn't entirely sure what I was going to, how I was going to feel by the end of them. Uh, and here's the funny thing: when I listened to the second book with the, I'm again, I'm listening to an audio series, audiobook style. I was starting out not terribly thrilled. I felt like I really am starting to regret doing this because I felt like that the immoral choices I talked about in the first book were just getting worse. Um, I, I think it's better if I explain it when I talk about the characters, because just like in the first book, we're again, we're following three individual characters throughout the narrative of this trilogy. And they're each experiencing this war from different points of view. So as the blurb talked about, and as the previous book talked about, you have Ben Stike, known as Mad Ben Stike. He was an army general a soldier who was disgraced wrongfully, and he was put in a essentially a labor camp. Um, 
a labor camp of horror, I should say, um, in the, in the beginning of the previous book. But he gets out and he looks for revenge against the guys who put him in there wrongfully. Uh, then you have Laura Flint. She's a mercenary general. And it became more clear to me in the second book, again, because I did not read the original Powder Mage trilogy, which actually kind of covers a bit more of her life. She was largely started as a character in that other trilogy. Um, she's actually from another country, and she basically has this army, the Rifle Jacks, who she basically does work for those who want to pay. You know, it's like if they need an army to do something for them, they pay her. And if she thinks that they're worth her time and she likes the client, then they'll go for it. And then you have Mikkel Bravis, who is the black hat spy, you know, who is part of, um, you see, in this country for Trasta, if you don't remember the first book or you don't remember my review, um, it's led by the Lady Chancellor, who's basically, she kind of is portrayed as almost like a Fuhrer figure, you know, almost kind of person. So the black hats are like her secret police or Gestapo, if you prefer. <laughs> so we have these three characters. Now, let me get to the part where I was like feeling bleh about, and it was largely on Ben Stike's part. Um, if you remember in the first book, and I even just mentioned it, he is all about his revenge. He wants revenge against the guy who put him in prison wrongfully. In fact, he was in front of a firing squad and survived the firing squad and then was put in the camp <laughs> wrongfully. And I mentioned that that quest of his was never regarded as a negative thing. It's like if anybody criticized him over something about his quest, it was not the fact that he was on the quest. It was the fact that he was doing it or going about it in a dumb way. Like he was still being supported in his quest. And he's also got this cute little girl um, that basically her dad died in the labor camps, but she kind of virtually became adopted by Ben Stike. Uh, Celine is her name. And, you know, she's around him, and he's a very violent guy. He's He doesn't just kill anybody, anywhere. I mean, like, if you're just an average person, he's not going to bother with you, though he's probably going to be pretty rude with you. Um, but when it came to any sort of attack or anything, he would take them out in some of the most cringeworthy ways. This is very gory. But he seemed to relish that, and Celine is kind of hanging around him, and she's not bothered by it either. In fact, she likes boasting to other people that he's a really good killer. And so in the first book, I kind of was like, I don't really like that. I don't like that he's dragging her into this, and I don't like it that the book is at no point in any shape or form presenting that as a wrong thing. Well, come the second book, Wrath of Empire, and it just kind of seemed to escalate. You know, he's not only going after the main guy who basically did him wrong, but now he's look, he's going after several other guys. And there's the Mad Lancers, you know, the group that um, he was head of before being in the labor camps, and now in the second book they're kind of reforming around him, like he has his old army buddies joining him. They're assisting him finding the guys who hurt him. It's, frankly, I, I thought it was kind of terrible. And I was, again, I was hating that it seemed like it was going further than, than, I, than it should be. I mean, it was already bad enough, but then it looked like it was doubling up. And I was like, oh, do we have to do this? Does it have to be like this? And ladies and gentlemen, you know, biblically speaking, the Lord says vengeance is mine. I will repay. So this whole thing is wrong, very wrong. And so I wasn't liking that very well. And that was much of the first half of the book for his side of the story. But to its credit, 
at the halfway point, then things started to shift a little bit for Ben Steck, which kind of helped save the book for me, at least on his end. Uh, ben Stike is actually called out by one of the guys who betrayed him. It's like he comes to kill him, and they're having this fight. Um, but the guy, he doesn't seem to care whether or not he lives or dies by Ben Stike. Again, I'm not going to try to give spoilers, because if you want to read the book, I don't want to spoil it for you. But he basically points out to Ben Stike what kind of a monster he is in doing what he's doing, and what point is it really serving. I mean, I know that sounds really cliche the way I'm saying it because we've all seen that kind of scene from a movie or a film or something where the revenge person is being called out by their opponent. We've seen that before. But the way the book does it, I will give Brian McClellan this. It was very well written. It was very well presented. And I liked it that it was one of the few times when Ben Stike actually kind of took a minute to really consider the lifestyle choice he's making here. So I give it credit. And by the third book, again, I decided to kind of like mold this together because it flows as one big narrative. Uh, by the third book, he's actually facing a situation where not only is he being faced with how much blood and conflict he's been in all this time and whether or not it's actually a good thing to be the monster that people like to see him as because he's the legendary Mad Ben Stike, you know. So he's faced with that. And on top of that, he's put in a situation where his brawn isn't going to help. You know, he has to actually act tactfully. He, he's literally put in a position where his hands are tied. And I liked the progress of his character. He actually, out of the three, he had a, I guess not the biggest character development arc change. Because even by the end, he still kind of has those violent tendencies and he still kind of relishes that. But his revenge lust has basically subsided. Uh, so I do really like that they kind of shifted that. Uh, moving on, uh, next I want to talk about Laura Flint, her side of the story. Um, in the second book, I mean, I enjoyed her because I, I like how she, again, to describe Laura Flint, if you didn't hear about the first um, episode I did with a book analysis, uh, Laura, she is a very straight-laced, very brilliant commander. She is kind to her men. She's like a mother to her men, basically. She is always trying to find the smart way to get around a battlefield, especially with after the first book. She literally has like at least two armies gunning, gunning for her head at the same time. And she's just trying to get her rifle jacks out of this country in the midst of this turmoil and this sudden war that's sprung up out of nowhere. She just wants to get out of it. But she is... Um, I really like how she maneuvers around other people and she always has a way to kind of uh, sneak past the enemy in some brilliant manner you know she she doesn't just force her way she always finds a roundabout um now of course the second side of her quest isn't just to get the her group the rifle jacks out after the first book she finds that there is a scheme and this is something that i do want to talk about a little bit more it might be a slight spoiler to the first book but since it plays such an overall thing to the goals of the story, um, I kind of have to talk about it. In this story, you have th have these godstones, and it's part of the bad guy's schemes to use these godstones to make a new god. And Vlora really does not want that. So she's working with an old friend of hers to find and secure other godstones so that they won't be able to make another god. 
And we'll be talking about that in a few minutes. You, you can bet your boots I'm talking about that. But I like how practical-minded she is. Um, she does have... She, it's really interesting to see how weary she gets when it's dealing with a bunch of politics. But she does the politics because she knows it's best for everyone. Um, the one negative thing that I had about in the second book with her story is I felt like the middle section dragged. I felt like there wasn't enough going on with her story. Not that it was completely boring, not that it was useless. I can't say that because it was integral to the plot. It wasn't like something that you could cut out and not miss. But I kind of felt like the way it was managed by Brian could have been tighter because I felt like when I was with Laura, I was a little bored and I felt like I really wanted this to move forward. Now, the third book... However, oh my gosh, she made a big improvement further, um, at least her story-wise. Um, again, I'm going to avoid spoilers, but at the end of the second book, she has been put into a dire situation that severely costs her. And not just costs her, traumatizes her in just about every possible way. Emotionally, physically, every way. And so in the third book, when you start out, she is this hardened person who is suddenly not nearly as merciful as she was before. She is angry. She is stressed. She is hurt. And part of me, when I first watched that, I kind of felt like, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense, especially with what she's been through. But then part of me wondered... Is this, this going to be her character this whole time? Is, she, is this going to be one of those stories where it's a cautionary tale where the hero becomes the villain? I was hoping not. And I was kind of afraid that's what they, where they were going with her character. But happy day because she, out of the three, had the biggest character arc out of the bunch. Uh, she changes in a very positive manner uh, where she actually starts changing fairly early in the third book. And it's not rushed. It's not rushed at all. It's handled very intelligently where she basically deals with the, the fact of her trauma, the facts of her loss, and she learns from her peers. She learns from an old diary that she had from a family member who was also a commander. And she's reading from the times in his life when he lost everything, and it wrecked him too. So it was really neat to see her reaching back into history and learning from those before her, which is a really good thing for us to do too. So I really, really commend Brian for bringing that area of her life up front and I really also like how as she's reading more and more about those who came before her and all they commanded I really really loved how she gained a, another ounce of uh, humility I mean I'm not going to say she was incredibly prideful even though there was ways she was but by the end of the third much of herself has calmed down she is more humble she makes apologies to people when she felt like what she did was right but then she realizes the way she went about it was wrong and I also like how she is willing to face up to her responsibilities back at her home country uh, because they make clear in the third book especially and this must have been what happened during that other trilogy Brian wrote uh, where the people in her country it's like she kind of started the rifle jacks and the mercenary thing because she kind of wanted to avoid facing consequences um, that they had against her, the, the, the government high officials had against her um, from the previous story, and even in the current story, what's going on right then. So I really liked it that she made a very wise decision that she can't keep running away from those things anymore. She needs to face them, but she's going to face them with dignity, you know, like those 
that she admired in uh, her family history. So I really like that about Vlora. She really um, went from a character that I thought was pretty good to one that I actually thought was actually quite good. So I give her that. And then we get to Mikhail Brabus, the Black Hat spy. And I gotta tell you, I loved him in the first book. I adored him by the third book. This character was one of the best I have seen and the most interesting and unique in fiction that I have seen in a very long while. Uh, he is probably right up there to being my favorite spy character along with uh, Ethan Hunt. I find it, and here's the worst thing about it though, there's one bad thing about it. If I were to talk about him too much, that's just going to spoil a lot of things about the first book because his whole life is full of intrigue. Um, I guess the best thing I can do is talk about the quality of his character and then I guess I have to gush about something. So I would just give you a little spoiler warning when it happens. Okay, I'll give you a warning. You will be able to click away if you don't want to hear anything about Mikkel Bravis's background, you know, if you don't want to know. But if you don't care or if you're really interested in hearing it, just keep listening. But, okay, for now, spoiler-free talk about Mikkel Bravis. I noted in the first book how much I love that he's this black hat spy. You know, he's part of that Gestapo group that the Lady Chancellor has in her country. And usually you kind of consider that sort of character as somebody that you really are supposed to hate. You know, someone who noses into other people's lives. Someone who basically is the secret police who cracks down on anyone who says anything negative about the government. You know, you, you think about that kind of uh, job and you think to yourself, I don't really think I'm going to like this guy. And when I started the book, I even commented that I thought he was going to be some sort of drunkard rat sort of person. You know, someone who's kind of a snitch on everyone he doesn't like and a grouch and constantly like murmuring to himself over doing this and doing that and being afraid of the people in charge. But but as the first book went, I discovered that he had a kindness to him that was unlike most of the other black hats. I mean, he was purposely taking care of his mother, not just taking care of her, but even when she was constantly ashamed of the fact that he was a black hat, um, he was bringing her books that she would enjoy. He's even kind to his co-workers when one co-worker messed up and it really required him to either be arrested, tortured, or killed. Mikkel allowed him to stage running away so that he could have a chance to get out of punishment. I mean, the, I could go on with the list. And again, as the second and the third books continue, everything that Mikkel Bravis does is not simply to help assist stopping those in power from increasing their power because they are going to hurt people but his thought and mindset was constantly about others it, i mean it was part of his mission He's, okay again this is a bit tricky to talk about um but let's just say that vlora's friend whom she's working with to um stop uh the bad guys from getting these godstones mikhail is also in service of this same friend of hers and he's also trying to assist in that problem and in the second book he's actually supposed to in, infiltrate and find one of his friend's best spies his best interlopers but he's again he's like in the middle of a city that's occupied by foreigners and he has to infiltrate the foreigners in order to find this person uh with very little to go on so it's it was a really intriguing thing uh story in fact i will even say that his story out of the three was the most constantly entertaining 
if you cut the other three stories out and it was just his, I would be happy as a clam anyway because his story, there was no point where it was born. It's like there was always an interesting twist during the middle of it. There was always an interesting conversation, always an interesting conflict. It just never let up. And I really loved that. I'm not going to say that it was like constant action. I mean, again, you have a lot of quiet moments, but even the quiet moments had a lot of intellect in them and a lot of interest. So again, bravo, Brian, bravo. Mikkel is amazing. But the thing is, is that even as he's doing his job trying to infiltrate enemy forces to try to find this particular um, informer for his friend, even with the people that he is infiltrating, the foreigners, he's always thinking about their welfare too. He goes out of his way and endangers himself and his mission on several occasions when he realizes that somebody in that group could die or somebody in um, uh, the person that he is working next to, even though the other person doesn't know who he really is, he goes out of his way to save him from things like bombings or a, a raid or um, a mob. You know, it's like, it's, it's just so endearing about him. He, that he defies his role and even endangers his role when he feels like uh, like someone that has been kind to him doesn't deserve that. And that also goes further into the third book as well. Because something that I found very interesting in how Brian handled Mikkel's life as this spy was incredibly in-depth and introspective to the character and I love this sort of thing I mean like for me the more in-depth the character the better the story is that's at least for my tastes um and in order to talk about it I feel like I should spoil a couple things so warning now spoilers skip ahead I promise I'm not going to keep on rattling on about this okay here we go three two one all right, spoiler time. Uh, Mikkel, he runs into this lady, and her name is Ictracia, and she is actually a member of the person who's invaded his home country. And Mikkel, he's originally kind of afraid of her because she is what they call a privileged. Because in, in this series, you have magic users called privileged. And throughout the books, you find that he is like constantly afraid of privileged. <laughs> But she is also the granddaughter of the main bad guy of the series. And so when he finds out, he's not sure if she's going to be his friend. He's not sure if she's going to be his enemy, that he, she's going to turn him over. But by the third book, they actually, he's actually helping her out because let's just say her grandfather has rather negative plans in mind regarding her. And Ictracia, she finds, I mean, the way she acts in the second book is she seems to be very much painted as a seductress type by those who have seen her, those who know her. Um, but then by the third book, you find that she's kind of like Mikkel in that very few people actually know the real her. And she finds Mikkel interesting because when she first met him, he's playing a role. But then by the, after the second book, after what happens there, she's actually learning more about him, the real him, and she finds that interesting. And so as the, as the two are working together and Mikkel is even teaching her how to be a good spy so that they can move along. And again, the way he handles being a good, um, Brian talks about being a good spy is very well thought out and reminiscent to actual spy work, not like the James Bond romanticized spy work 
I mean like actual spy work, actually looking uninteresting on purpose so that no one notices you, you know, those sorts of things. It's really smart. But as the two are beginning to learn more and more about each other, Mikel is finding that he's liking the fact that pieces of him are actually able to come out for once um, around another person who also feels like the real her can come out for once because of the position she had in her society. She was basically required to not reveal to other people that she has a kind side, that she doesn't want to support her grandfather's ambitions. You know, it's like she's constantly playing a role just as he's constantly playing a role. And I found that their chemistry together was really, really good. In fact, I got fully invested. And again, I really liked how Mikkel was like going through the identity existential crisis of being a spy for such a long time. He's dedicated to what he's doing because he is dedicated to actually helping a subgroup called the Palo. And in fact, in the first book, that's why he was in the Black Hats in the first place. He was a double agent. Okay, now I'm going to end the spoilers. So if you're looking for the point of skipping ahead, spoilers over. You're in the clear now. I will stop gushing about Mikkel. Except for just a few more seconds. Mikkel is awesome. I really love this guy. <laughs> okay, now other positives about the series because, you know, I talked about the three main characters. Um, overall, the world building is just as great as it was in the first book. I thought Brian created a world that is interesting. It's unique in its own way. Because it feels kind of like a, an era where it would have taken place during time periods like, say, the French Revolution or American Revolution. But in this series, you have um, some supernatural elements. You have some people who have different levels of magic. Some people who don't have magic but can sense magic. And I even talked about in the first book where I thought it was a very interesting new style of um, magic where it's powder, being a powder mage. Like, Vlora, she's a powder mage. And basically, they take a whiff of powder, like gunpowder, and then they can basically control um, other people's guns and cause barrels of gunpowder to explode just by a mental thought. It increases their senses. It was, it's really interesting um, and very memorable. And plus, even though I talked about uh, the pacing of Laura's story in the second book kind of dragging a little bit, the third book is very, very, very well paced. It is... Again, and I'm saying that equally about all three characters this time. I mean, for me, the consistent one for as far as interest and pace was Mikkel's. Um, but in the third book, all three stories were actually moving at a really good pace. I was actually equally invested with all three of them. What's equally impressive about this trilogy is not simply how well the three characters are written and how well paced. Overall, it is, but it's also about how easy it is to follow. I mean, sometimes I find when a world is as complex as this, it's really, really, really tempting for the author to go overboard in exposition or to throw terms everywhere that, you know, just makes you confused and hard to follow it, uh, especially if you're listening to an audiobook. If you listen to an audiobook, I find it's a lot harder to grasp onto things because you're not reading it. You're not like seeing the same word and taking the time to digest it. I mean, there's a narrator and then the word just passes by. But in Brian's case though, the way he's written the book, and I also wanna give kudos to the um, narrators of these audiobooks. They were great, in fact, fantastic. It was very easy to follow. I found everything going on very memorable and the terms they used were used pretty, straightforwardly and they were also used simply and again I will 
like the first episode, I will gush to the day I die at how fantastic Brian McClellan's naming is. I mean, again, such memorable names. It just rolls off the tongue. Vlora Flint, Olem, Ben Stike, Carpole, you know, like all these different names. And then you have Rifle Jacks, you have Adran, you have Mad Lancers, you have Dainais. Uh, you know, all these distinctive names, and they are distinctly put together so that whenever you think of the word, he's written in such a way that you have a picture in your head and you can easily remember where they are now. I mean, it, your experience can be different from mine. Admittedly, um, I have been able to grasp onto things like this pretty readily pretty much my whole life. Mom and dad thinks it's a gift I have from my uh, great uncle. But I mean, your your situation might be different, but for me, compared to other books I've listened to recently, I felt like everything was well explained. It was easy to hold on to, and it was easy for me to always remember where I was whenever I restarted the narration, rather than just kind of standing there, like staring at the ceiling with my earphones on, thinking, "Okay, where was this? Where was I leaving off? I don't quite remember now." Like, oh yeah, that's it. I I didn't have that problem with uh, this trilogy. Um, also, world building. Uh, oh, I, I talked about world building, but something I didn't mention is that since the first book, you're kind of like in the same country for a while. In the second and the third books, you get to see a lot more cultures. You get to see a lot more different peoples and countries. And you I mean you even get to go into the enemy territory. You know, the in the first book again, just a slight spoiler. They are indeed invaded by foreigners in that country. Um, Fratrasta, you know, Dionys comes in against Fratrasta. Um, but in the third book, very, I guess I consider this like a minor spoiler. We do have a character, a few characters that end up in Dionys. What I really love though, is that they didn't like do the basic, this side's good, this side's evil. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But in this case, I just, again, I applaud Brian's intelligent use of these tropes. Because when you're in the foreign country, you see there are good people, there are bad people. In fact, there's a lot of inner conflict within that country that don't, some people who don't entirely agree with the choices that their leaders have made regarding the, uh, the other nations. You know, and it was, it has a lot more intrigue and it felt a lot more real because that's what it's like in real life. I mean, yeah, we can look at histories like World War II and we can, or even the Civil War. I mean, I've been, rereading and relearning more about the civil war lately i mean we can tell our kids you know that it was as black and white with the union versus the confederacy you know that the confederacy was bad because they were fighting to keep their slaves and the union was good because the union wanted to free the slaves which was true let's be honest it was true it was a bad thing that we had slavery in this country it was a good thing the union won but at the same time we can't we're doing a grave disservice to both sides if we want to claim like there wasn't anybody in the Union who had bad motives or wrong motives for fighting the Confederacy, just the same as we can't look at all the Confederates and think that they all were agreeing to slavery. I think a few prime examples would be John Wilkes Booth, who was part of the Union, but he was a South sympathizer, and then he ends up assassinating the president. And then in the Confederate side, you have most famously Robert E. Lee. He was a Christian man. He also didn't care for slavery, and, you know, personally, I think he'd made the wrong decision fighting for the Confederacy, but again, I don't know him personally, but Robert E. Lee want, didn't want to fight against his home state. He loved his state, and he he hoped to have the slaves free, 
sometime. It's just that he felt like the states individually should decide for themselves when they free their slaves. So that's why he fought with the Confederates. But again, you know, you don't hear that sort of talk when you just water it down to one side being good, one side being bad. Both sides have good people in them and both sides have bad people in them. And I really liked it that Brian didn't take the easy route out. In fact, he made it all the more interesting as the trilogy went. I mean, I can go on and on about it. I think I've talked too much already. So final talking points now, and this is basically when I talk about the main moral things that has, whether it's issues or not. I mean, I already hinted on a few things. Like, again, parents with kids, this is a violent book. There are some descriptions that are pretty grotesque. In fact, there were a few times where I was cringing as I listened to it. And if you don't know my threshold for violence, I'd say my threshold for violence is about the level of the film Saving Private Ryan. That's pretty much about my threshold. So I've got a pretty good threshold. So if a book is even making me cringe, that should tell you something. So little ones probably shouldn't be listening to this. And it's up to you whether or not you feel like your teen is okay to listen to it. Uh, Same case as far as the language. The worst word they tend to use is the S-bomb. And they do sometimes use God's name in vain as well. And they would sometimes use a fake exclamatory like they would say the word pit. So take that in mind. There's some mild, crude language. I'd say it's probably about the rating of a PG-13 film level of cussing, I think. It's not all the time, but enough times to make me feel like, would you quit doing that? The third thing, um, I talked in the first book how they looked at premarital sex is okay. They did it again in this one. In fact, there were a couple times where not even Mikhail Bravis was free of this, and I really wish they didn't make they didn't have him do this. We do have more cases with couples being in bed together when they are not married, and even implied to have quote unquote had a go. <laughs> but thankfully, we are spared the full description of these things. They're often implied or after the fact when you enter the story at any point so at least you're not actually watching or reading literary intercourse but it's still there and i have to dock points for that it's like it's not right god did god established marriage between husband and wife within the covenant the marriage covenant so i'm not gonna uh, gonna act like it's a good thing they had that going on uh, no hanky panky <laughs> As for the message of the story, and I guess this is another positive I had about the books. The climax of the third book was extremely good, riveting. In fact, it was the one time I can recall where I purposely, after finishing the book, scrolled several chapters back and re-listened to it again. It was that good. It was that high octane, that interesting. And also, what I love best is the ending the final conclusions for all three of our main characters was very satisfying. I was very happy with how things turned out for each of them. And for each of them, they all improved in their own ways. You know, again, I'm not going to, I'm definitely not spoiling endings, but I really loved how the journeys of each of these characters led them to an outcome that was happy, positive in a moral sense, and also satisfying to an experience sense. So it was really good. I think in the moral sense, I do give it points for going on a good route with it. Okay, now the last, of course, point to bring out as far as morals are concerned is the supernatural and the magic stuff. And I already talked about it a little bit earlier. So if if any of you parents heard that and were like, uh, uh, no, no, we don't want that. Or if you as a person are like, you don't want to get involved with anything 
of supernatural nature or magic whatsoever, skip this trilogy, okay? It is an integral part of the world. Now, for my personal opinion, I felt like most of it was very fairy tale style magic. It didn't feel like terribly real world occult, but I do give pause when we had blood magic involved. It's like there are some people in the story called Bone Eyes who are basically blood mages. And again, I don't recall any of the practices uh, they were doing that was really reminiscent of actual real life Wiccan practice, similar or not. Um, but I know that even that, even just talking about it out loud, it sounds really bad. So if that's ringing alarm bells for you, then you probably want to skip this as well. Um, and then we have the whole God thing. Yes, with the God stones. And this is something I really have to dock a huge number of points for, for its biblical integrity. In fact, out of 10 points, this would get a one because there's no mention of God in this. And when gods are mentioned, they're often referred to in a negative sense. And godhood is treated as something like being a superhuman. Then it is actually having a deity. There is no sense of there being any, any groundings for moral goodness, which in the Bible, it describes God as the source of what is good and what is right. So, I mean, again, it's just kind of all tossed out the window. In fact, you know, it's almost like the mentality of no gods. We do not want any gods. And... <laughs> Here's the thing. We do not want gods like the people who are trying to become gods in this series. We do not want one of the bad guys being a god. And personally, I don't want any of the good guys being a god either because they're all flawed. And what kind of a world would the... I mean, if you compare that to the biblical god we have, we do not want or need a god who has faults, who has limits. It just spells disaster, which was, in a way, right of the characters to not want a god like that. But it's also just as wrong to not want a God, period. Because we need a God like our God who is all righteousness, perfect, loving, fully powerful, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. It is a necessity for just to function in life. I mean, we can't breathe without him doing anything. We need him to be active in our, in our lives and in our world. And praise the Lord, he is. He says so in his word. So... Yes, we do not need a fallible God, but we need a God of the Bible. So, again, for that reason, I'm really docking it down a lot of points for not admitting that we need a good ruler. We need a good savior. But, again, that's not the mentality Brian McClellan had. And I wouldn't expect it. I mean, I don't know the man personally. He probably isn't a Christian. Uh, but, again, we're looking at this from a biblical perspective. So, regardless of the mentality or the personal views of the author, I have to dock it for that. So for overall style, I would give it a 90% score, very high. And again, I am going to say it, this is a really, really well-written trilogy. Ceaselessly entertaining, great characters, great pacing, save for that one little bit in the middle of the second book. And the immersion level was just fantastic. The um, descriptiveness and the ability to follow it is just great. However, the moral score, it's down. Both books, I'm going to put down to 36%. Yes, some of the messages came around well. I like Ben Stike's journey from being completely revenge-filled to basically kind of uh, abating that a bit, you know, dialing it back. And I love Laura's transformation to someone who's more humble, who is going to take responsibility and even apologize for things that she does. You know, those were good things. But the rest of it, from the magic side of things to how they portrayed gods, to high violence, very descriptive violence, 
and their disregard for marital sanctity. Um, I really have to dock it a lot. So with that in mind, with a style score of 90% and a moral score of 36%, this gives the book series uh, Gods of Blood and Powder, which would be Sin of Empire, Wrath of Empire, and Blood of Empire. Its overall percentage would be 60%. It's above average, but the moral score um, really docked it a lot. So if you really are someone who wants to be highly entertained and you do not mind bad doctrine for most of it, um, you know, just as like something fun to just get away from the real world for a little while and then come back, then you'll probably enjoy this story. And if you're looking for a fantasy world that is incredibly unique from any other fantasy world that you have seen, this would also be a really good one too. And if you really love character arcs and in-depth characters, then this is the one for you and you're going to love Mikkel. (laughs) I can keep gushing about Mikkel. He's great. But if you're a person who is heavily affected or impacted by any of the negative things I talked about, don't risk your walk with Christ. Just skip it. And there are going to be other books that'll be better for you. Thanks so much for joining me on this double book review of Wrath of Empire and Blood of Empire. This is actually quite fun for me to do because it's it's kind of fun to go off script, you know. <laughs> I mean, not that I scripted the other episodes, but I mean, I do try to have some bullet points. But this kind of gives me a chance to just have a microphone and just freeform. <laughs> so, yeah, and uh, I hope you guys will enjoy this because I'm going to go further with the reviews. In fact, I have planned to do another book review of a book I just listened to. I finished it like a week ago at the time of this recording. It is um, part of a new trilogy. In fact, the third book hadn't come out yet. Um, it's called Shadow of the Gods, and I forgot the name of the author already. I- I'm going to have to look that up again. And on top of that, I received a lot of wonderful books from other independent authors, many of which were guests on my show, actually. So I'm going to be, I want to do some reviews on them as well. In fact, I am just about done with Chris Wachter's um, uh, uh, first book in her series. It's The Sorcerer's Bane, and it was the Seven Words series. I had to think about it for a moment. And I'm going to be finishing with that pretty soon. And then afterwards, I'm going to have to choose which my next book will be. I'm thinking about Into the Room uh, by Stephen Rogers. So, you know, we just had him on the show, actually. So I'm thinking about doing his book next. Um, But again, I mean, I have to try to look look at everything I've got and see which one I think would probably be a good idea right now. Because you never know. Sometimes you're in the mood for one kind of book. And then you're in the mood for a different kind of book. So I want to pick a book when I feel like I'm in the mood for this kind of book, you know, and give it the best shot I can. All right. So with that, I think that's it. So tune in next time. We will have another book review soon, as well as another great episode um, planned for another time. So, yeah. Thanks. Bye. And God bless. Thanks again for joining me here on Flying Faith Talks. And hey, if you really like this podcast and you'd like to learn more about me or the website, subscribe to flyingfaith.org and follow Flying Faith on Facebook, MeWe, Instagram, and Pinterest. And hey, subscribers receive exclusive content like updates on the website, updates on my books, sneak peeks, chances for prizes, and the opportunity to connect with me. Anyway, that's all for today. Thanks, guys, and come back soon.